Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jad S. Samir, his kindness was nonstop. The stack of ones that got lower as the day went on, it was beautiful that he did that. But it was also like a pretty good excuse for like, if your girl catches you going to the strip club, who's these ones for Samir, fucking for God's children? That and more. But first, what comes to mind from your own life when you hear the expression, truth or dare? Maybe a time you played <laughs> truth or dare when you were young, or maybe a time you told the truth, despite that being a really risky thing to do, or a time you were involved in doing anything on a dare, or just doing daring do. <laughs> Well, pitch us your stories if anything came to mind. It is so easy to do over at risk-show.com slash submissions. We'll be right back. In the fast-paced world of attacking, speed is everything. And that's where the Furon 7 Plus shines. Engineered for accuracy and precision at a rapid pace, it's your secret weapon on the pitch. Experience overall comfort and precise striking, even in the game's fastest moments. The nylon outsole, with its V-shaped stud configuration, is designed for firm ground, giving you the grip you need to outmaneuver your opponents. Step up your attacking game and learn more and purchase the Furon at NewBalance.com. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now here's the show. 
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is Johnny Bredso behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode Light and Shadow. These are stories about how people can have good intentions or have convinced themselves they're working for a good cause and end up causing harm, and conversely, how people who might think they're up to no good might make something good of it anyway. You know, the older I get, and and the more stories I tell, and the more stories I hear, (laughs) the more I question everything. Everything I ever thought I believed, you know, the more curious I become about when I might have been deceiving myself, it's humbling. I mean, it can be painful sometimes, actually. But also, I feel like life can become even more fascinating for all that. I'll tell you, one way we have been walking down memory lane a lot lately has been with our TikTok videos. You know, many are recent, But many others are from the earlier years of the show. I mean, there are videos (laughs) that we're putting up, you know, little clips of stories that people shared going all the way back to like 2009. One of them has reached over 3 million views, I think, at this point. But they're such a trip because you get to see younger versions of people who are like family to risk now and theaters that no longer exist, and celebrities that were still largely unknown when they did the show. These little windows into, gosh, these pockets (laughs) of the history of this amazing endeavor. And of course, you know, they're very entertaining too, the little clips that are chosen. So if if you haven't checked them out yet, they're at risk show on either TikTok or Instagram, so be sure to go visit us there. Now, in a little bit, we're gonna hear from Jad S, who you can find on Instagram, at Jad Slay, and I'll say more about that in a bit. But before that, we're gonna have one from Nessa Goldman. It's Nessa's first time on the show, and she was lovely to work with. She hosts a story slam on the Olympic Peninsula that you can find at outloudstoryslam.com. So here's Nessa now with a story we call Fork in the Road. So when I was a kid, my whole family would pile into my grandparents' tiny apartment every single Saturday for family lunch. I had a very big family. My mom was one of seven kids, and there were at that time 12 grandkids. And of the 12, my cousin Maggie and I were the oldest, so we were thick as thieves. She was my best friend. We were actually only one month apart. So when they would come in, they were actually coming in from out of town and my family lived in the city, which is where my grandparents lived. So a lot of the times we'd end up having sleepovers, sometimes at my grandparents' house where we had our first taste of alcohol. We had some Iraq together with my grandfather one New Year's 
Um, but most of the time we'd have sleepovers at my family's house. And when she would come have sleepovers at my house, especially as we were getting older, we'd talk a lot about boys because we were obsessed with boys, uh, mostly Devon Sawa and Jonathan Taylor Thomas, who we thought we would make our boyfriends somehow by writing them fan letters to Tiger Beat and Bot Magazines. And we'd sometimes write silly limericks together. My favorite was one about John Wayne Bobbitt and Lorena Bobbitt, if you remember them. Let me refresh your memory. It goes like this. John Wayne Bobbitt beat his wife. She got out a kitchen knife, cut his dick, and the doctor said, Sorry, sir, your dick is dead. When I die, will you bury me? Hang my balls on a cherry tree. When they're ripe, just take a bite. Don't blame me if you piss all night. So obviously we're very talented <laughs> lyricists, but we were just mostly really silly together. And so one of the weekends when we were having a sleepover party, we ended up going to Baskin Robbins and we're sharing a pint of ice cream. And Maggie turns to me and asks me if I believe in Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, Jesus, you know, magic tricks, walks on water. I know the guy. And what was especially weird about this isn't that she's asking me about Jesus and we're only 11 years old. It's that my family's Jewish and she is essentially telling me that her family has become Jews for Jesus. And she's expressing concern to me that I need to take Jesus into my heart. And I'm like, well, what happens if I don't take Jesus into my heart? She's like, well, when the rapture happens, you're gonna go to hell. And I was like, oh, I don't wanna go to hell. Like, what are my options? And she's like, you have to, you have to love Jesus. And I don't know where this part comes from, but she said that if I didn't take Jesus, I could have my head chopped off when the rapture happened and then I would go to heaven. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> But anyway, you know, I went home that night and I talked to my mom about it and I was really upset and she tried to reassure me and she's like, you know, what about the Hindus and the Muslims and of course the Jews? Like, we're all gonna go to hell? Like, this is absurd. And I think that reassured me a bit. But what was most upsetting is that my cousin, my, you know, best friend thought I was going to hell. And so at this time, she started going to Bible camp and I started smoking weed. And I essentially became, you know, the bad influence cousin who like rode the bus and stayed out late with her friends. But I didn't have like free reign entirely. My parents had, they had rules and I was mostly a rule follower. Like I had a good sense of trust with my parents. They always taught me to be honest with them. And, you know, if I follow the rules, I could, I could do more. And so this is the 90s, and rave culture was like a really big thing in the 90s. If you're not familiar with raves, at that time, it was uh, big warehouses packed with kids of all ages dancing to like happy hardcore and jungle music and like staying out all night long and sucking on pacifiers and eating MDMA. And I really wanted to go, and it wasn't because of like the MDMA or whatever, it was because of the dancing all night long. Actually, I was like kind of afraid of synthetic drugs, like war on drugs. like their era, don't do drugs. So it wasn't really my thing. But my parents knew, they knew that I wanted to go to a rave. And their way of conveying their concern to me was what a lot of parents do these days when they, you know, send you news links on Facebook and so on. They were cutting out newspaper articles and leaving clippings on my bed about kids who were overheating when they were doing MDMA and dancing all night long. And they were really worried that that was my prerogative. And when it came time for me to want to go, I had to really think about like asking them. My dad's a lawyer, so he's a really big fan of contracts. And so we'd have these like sit down conferences. So it was like, where did you want to go? I want to go to Hullabaloo. It's a first Canadian place. Okay, who are you going with? I'm going with my friend, Rachel. Like, when is it? What time will you be home? So we kind of laid out all these rules. And above all else, it was 
don't do drugs. And I figured I could agree to that because at that time, they actually knew that I smoked weed. I was in high school. I think they even knew that I had done mushrooms at that point. And I didn't really consider mushrooms a drug. You know, anything white and powdery was a drug, but everything else was, you know, mama earth. So (laughs) eventually they gave me permission to go. And the rules around me going were that, you know, I let them know when I got there, I didn't do drugs, and that I called them or came home right afterwards. So it comes to the day of the rave, and there's only a couple things that really stand out to me. We're meeting up with my friend Scott. He's the guy with the drugs, and he has everything. He's got mushrooms, and he's got acid, and he's got ecstasy and ketamine. And it was $10 for a gram of mushrooms or $5 for a hit of acid. And I always liked a good deal. And, you know, he's like, they're really similar, but the acid lasts all night. And I was like, oh, what the hell? I'm at a rave. So I did the acid. And the rest of the night is like a haze of like whistleblowing. And at one point, Rachel was vomiting and it's splashing on me. And a good time at a rave in Toronto. And so go home the next day, really tired, but feeling pretty good. And everything seemed copacetic. So I was a latchkey kid, which meant that I got home every day before my parents or anybody else, and I'd pick up the mail, and I'd bring it inside, and I'd, you know, cook dinner and do my homework on the couch. That day, I brought in the mail, and I remember this envelope, it just stood out to me. It was baby blue, written on a typewriter, addressed to the parents of Nessa Goldman with no return address. So it struck me as odd right away, but like I said, I was pretty honest. It wasn't addressed to me, so I put it in the pile for my parents and I went about the rest of my evening. That night, my mom comes in. Her eyes are streaked with tears and she's just clutching that envelope while I'm just sitting doing my homework and she hands it to me. And I'm like, oh shit. Because what's even weirder is I didn't see my mom cry very often, so I knew that this was gonna be something heavy. So I open it up and the letter had four lines. It said, don't let your daughter go to any more rave parties. Her friends are a bad influence. She's been lying to you. She's been doing the drug ecstasy. No names, nothing. And I'm in shock, obviously. And I immediately confessed to everything. I'm like, oh, I didn't do ecstasy, but I did acid. And ah, it was okay, but like, wasn't anything special. And no, I'll never do it again, even though later I would. But I felt really immediately guilty about everything because more than the fact that I had done drugs, I had betrayed my parents' trust. And my mom was devastated that I had essentially lied to her. And we spent the whole night crying and, you know, I was, of course, grounded. But in the days that followed, I started to wonder, you know, who wrote this letter? Who would have written this letter? And the first person I thought of was my friend Rachel's mom. She's the friend I went to the rave with. And she actually lied to her mom and said she was staying at my house. And her mom had actually called me the next day and, you know, asked if I had gone and if my parents knew. And so I thought maybe she was like ratting me out. And she was like, of course not. Why would I write an anonymous letter to your parents? You know, then I started asking my friends. I'm asking everybody. I'm trying to think like, who did I tell about the letter that would have thought to write to my parents this anonymous letter? And so I'm probably even telling people that I never even told to begin with. And eventually I start going to therapy and therapy's not helping. And I start thinking that maybe my parents even wrote the letter. Maybe they've like, you know, pigeonholed me into confessing something. And time goes by years, literally, and it just becomes this anonymous letter of lore. It's probably the first story I'd started ever telling people about, you know, like, you'll never believe it. This letter that came from nowhere ruined my life. (laughs) Um, And 
so it just kind of became something I'd always tell people. It was like part of my life story. Then in my last year of high school, I'm over at my friend Danny's house, and she's a new friend, and so she's never heard this story before. And I'm telling her, and I get to the point where I'm like, and I thought it was so-and-so, and I thought it was so-and-so. And then I get to the part where I just realize, holy shit, I never asked Maggie. And I don't know what made it click at that moment, because I didn't really think about Maggie that much anymore. I mean, the days of family lunches have kind of gone aside. She had become much more Christian. Um, but she had a sweet 16, and I went to her sweet 16. It was the kind of party that, like, the people in the town of Footloose would have loved. Like, there was no dancing or DJs. It was, you know, charades and improv games and talking about why Jesus went to parties. And, you know, I spent the whole weekend with my cousin trying to kind of rekindle those silly sleepover times but she had really just become this kind of prude Christian wasp, and we just didn't really connect the same way. But that night at Danny's house, as I'm telling that story, it just kind of made sense. I was like, man, Maggie was worried about my soul. Maggie knew my home address. So it was even, it was that same night, I went home, like I did on a normal night anyway, and I logged onto the home computer to MSN Messenger, usually just to chit-chat with whoever, but sure enough, her handle banged into the corner. And I was like, oh shit, this is gonna happen. And I, I messaged her right away, and I didn't even make with pleasantries. I was just like, hey, do you remember that letter? She's like, yeah, yeah, I remember the letter. I'm like, no, do you really remember the letter? Like, I went to therapy. She's like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm like, did you, did you or your mom write that letter? Because I had a feeling her mom was involved in it in some way. And she said, yeah, yeah, we did. We were really worried about you. We were praying for you. And I was like, that's where I fucking lost it. I was just like, you and your mom thought the best thing to do was to write an anonymous letter to her sister to tell her that I'm doing drugs. You didn't think to come to me. You didn't want to talk to me. And she was like, unapologetic completely. She was just, you know, we were doing what we thought was right. You were on the wrong track. You were doing drugs. And I was like, I can't believe you. I hate you. I'm never gonna forgive you. I was just a teenage girl full of fury. And she was like, you will, you will forgive us. And I was just like, I couldn't believe it because, you know, how could she not tell me? Like her and I were so close. And I just kind of left that conversation thinking I was never gonna talk to her again. I had essentially prepared myself to cut her out of my life. Those family days were really in the past and we were going to university the next year, so I really didn't have much reason to see her anymore. I would still dream of her every so often. And in those dreams, it was like we were still close, like we were kids and we were joking around. I even had one like about her husband where he and I had a relationship and I've only met him like one time, so I, I don't have a relationship with him. I would continue though, the story was still a part of my life, like complete with a surprise ending that like, you'll never believe who wrote the letter in the end that upended everything. And it was actually probably a couple of years until I saw her again. And when I did eventually see her, I realized that she was right in a way because I couldn't really be mad at her. She really thought she was doing what was best for me. And she wasn't the same vibrant cousin that I had this deep relationship with. She was this you know, Christian crusader for Christ, literally was a group she was a part of. She was a shell of the girl that I knew. And 
While I thought I had all these things I knew I was going to say to her when I saw her, I, I didn't say any of those things. I just kind of made small talk with her and realized that she just believed that she was acting in my best interest, and I, I couldn't be mad at her for that. That cousin that I loved and had all those memories with, she started to disappear that day at Baskin-Robbins, and, and this cousin was, was born again. So, you know, I don't see her very much these days. I did... Um, get to spend some time with her this summer when my grandfather passed away. We had a shiva for him and the whole family got together. And, you know, she showed up with her long straight hair parted in the middle, ill-fitting shirt, long skirt, Birkenstocks. You know, she's got five kids. She's in it deep. <laughs> and I tried to kind of find that fun cousin that I grew up with. And I reminded her of that John Wayne Bobbitt song and she, she kind of chuckled and there was like, you know, a little glimmer in her eye, but we still couldn't really like connect on that same level. You know, and in working on this story, I had a really hard time revisiting it. And I think what has been happening is that I never really allowed myself to miss Maggie. Like in all these years, I put up these walls when I was in high school or at the end of high school when I found out that it was her. And I didn't allow myself to miss her. I refused to even go there. And now after kind of hashing things out with myself, I'm realizing that like, you know, I do miss her and I've, I've lost her. And it's, it's really different than other losses because unlike other losses where maybe somebody ghosts you or they die, like they're out of your life. But like Maggie's still here. She's still in my life. I just don't have that same relationship. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. We're back.
This is Risk. This is Prince behind me now. And we just heard from Nessa Goldman. Now, our next story was recorded uh, when Risk was last in Philly. This one comes to us from Jad S., who you can find on Instagram at Jad Slay. Now, Jad's life story is pretty extraordinary. He's an Arab Muslim American. He lived through the explosion of anti-Arab racism after 9-11. But he joined the Marines in order to train through them to become a reporter. And you'll hear some of that in the story he's about to tell. But in more recent years, he was working as a reporter at an NPR show. Jed's other love is comedy, and he started off doing musical comedy, playing piano. But when he was diagnosed with MS, he was afraid he might lose the motor skills required to play the piano. So he made the switch to stand-up comedy. And because Jed has seen so much messed up stuff over the course of his life, and because racism has been such a part of his life, he pushes the envelope and tackles those explosive issues in his stand-up comedy. That's why it came as a huge shock when the NPR show he was working for saw his Instagram where there were comedy clips of Jad critiquing racism, basically, and some of the white executives there were offended by just you know the nature of the material and fired him on the spot accusing jad of being racist and that left jad without health insurance to get his meds for ms and it left him without the career in journalism that he spent all those years forging in the marines in war-torn countries and it left jad with the reputation of a comedian who'd been quote-unquote canceled but I think you'll be able to hear from the story. Jad is a nuanced and compassionate storyteller. There's lots of surprise twists in his way of putting things and a lot of emotional intelligence underlying it. He might make jokes that make people uncomfortable, you know, or make people think twice. But that's a venerable tradition in comedy from Richard Pryor to Mae West to Shakespeare. So, Jad is looking for work. If you know of anyone looking for a comedian, a writer, a journalist, do look him up on Instagram, at Jad Slay. That's J-A-D-S-L-A-Y. Now, as I hinted before, a lot of his story takes place in, you know, the war-torn Middle East from when Jad was working as a reporter there. So, there will be blood. But the audience in Philly was pretty blown away by how surprisingly Jad told this loaded story. So without further ado, here he is now, Jad S., with a story we call Unrelenting. So when the war against ISIS started heating up in Iraq, I was actually, uh, I was living in Afghanistan at the time. 
You could do that back in the day. They'd let anyone in. The whole vetting process of the Afghans was, are you sure about this? <laughs> There's other countries, dude. There's France. What are you doing? It was sometime after ISIS had took uh, Mosul, the second biggest city in Iraq, that my boss called me up and said, hey, we need you to go cover this. I was working at the time for Stars and Stripes as a war zone reporter. And in fairness to them, they didn't specify which war zone. Iraq would be my fourth. It made sense to send me because I speak Arabic. They'd hired an Arab as their war zone reporter, and wouldn't you know it, a war broke out in the Middle East of all places. What are the chances? Come on. I'd never been to Iraq before, but a lot of my boys had fought there because I actually, uh, I served in the Marine Corps. I joined too late to deploy to Iraq. So getting to go there years after we'd left, I felt like I got to see like the, the legacy of the American invasion and occupation of Iraq. And it was tragic. I'm talking Ed Hardy t-shirts fucking everywhere. <laughs> They're rocking that shit, dude. Tap out, affliction. We taught them, dude. We were a bad influence. We were such a bad influence, I saw Iraqi dudes using dip. Do you guys understand how insane that is, dude? Arabs, here's the thing about us, dude. We fucking smoke, all right? Top world smokers, it's Chinese dudes on break, and then it's us. I had a fucking uncle who had to go to the hospital on account of he fell asleep smoking and lit his chest hair on fire. Yes, and he's a fucking Arab, so that became also his back and shoulder hair. A damn backdraft, dude. Y'all gotta understand, Iraqi culture is ancient and beautiful, and we just, we replaced it with South Jersey dog shit. I'm surprised I never saw a prayer rug with the Punisher logo on it. And I'll say, goddamn salt life on the mosque. And Iraqi old timers, you know, they complain to me. They remember the old Iraq, you know? Ed Hardy, we never suffer this level of corniness under Saddam. You guys know what's funny about my Arab guy impression? I am an Arab guy. How does it still sound racist? What am I, how am I fucking it up? When I first got to Iraq, I stayed in Baghdad. And uh, at this point in the war, ISIS was maybe 15 minutes outside the city. And it was very scary because ISIS had infiltrated the city with all these sleeper cells who would launch random attacks. It's wild being scared of your own people. Everyone there, they looked like my cousins or friends of my parents, people we'd have over for tea or hookah. We were all terrified of each other. I got to see some of the worst of what people do in the name of religion. One day, these soldiers they, in northern Iraq, they took me to, they wanted to show me this house that they'd recently retaken from the Islamic State. And you walk up, it's like a normal family house, but it's got all this ISIS graffiti on it, spray painted on it. Means uh, the caliphate is established and shall endure. You saw a lot of that. You also saw a lot of dick drawings. I know, drawing dicks is universal, I guess. Everybody does it. Now, I didn't know why the soldiers wanted to show me this particular house. They'd taken dozens just like it. I got my first clue when I walked in. The first thing you notice is this, the smell. Blood. Rotting. It turned out that that house was a, it was a house they used for, for executions. ISIS had, and they, they did all the executions in the same room. You walk in and you see, it looks like there's a, like a rug across the floor. It's like this rusty brown thing. But the closer you get, you see it's more like a, it's like a gel. 
It's, it's blood in different stages of coagulation. They killed so many people in that room that their blood had completely submerged the floor. People ask me, like, what, do you, what goes through your head? Like, what are you feeling when you see things like this? And the truth is nothing. You don't feel anything. You don't feel anger, fear, sadness. You're, you're, you're working, you know? But I do remember there was like a, a sinking. Like the world got deeper and more dark, and it stayed that way. I, I can see why people say, you know, religion is the root of so much evil in the world. I can. But it's the root of more than that. Like a couple days before the kill house, I was with my driver, Samir. He's a very devout Muslim. And he opened up the center council in the car, and he had this stack of $1 bills in there, Iraqi $1 bills. He wanted to make sure he had something to give to every beggar who asked. He didn't want to say no to anybody. Me, at the time, I was the complete opposite. You got to understand, like a lot of people, when they leave the United States and work abroad, they kind of, they end up getting taken advantage of, you know? Like they're not used to the poverty you see in the developing world, so they get swindled. They fall for every sob story. Me, I kind of like, I prided myself on like, nah, like I'm a hard ass, savvy foreign correspondent. You know what I'm saying? I don't fall for that shit. I see like a little girl begging in the street with a baby in one arm and not having another arm. And I roll up the window, dog. She's not getting shit from me, dude. She'll just, she'll blow it on food and medicine. Now Samir just, he destroyed that dumb shit. As I watched them like slide a bill to every single person who asked, I don't think I've ever felt more ashamed of myself. I do think doing this kind of work, you do got to close yourself to the world. The scale of desperation is too great. Like I remember in the Marines, we was on a mission in West Africa, a humanitarian mission. And the Marines had to put magazines in the rifles and, and chamber rounds to get the crowds to calm down. Too many people had showed up for too little medical care. They were armed with nothing but bottomless need, and that can be lethal. Now as to why I can't remember the last time I gave a homeless guy change, I'm kind of an asshole. Nothing profound there, just kind of a dickhead. I do think you gotta be hard sometimes, but I don't think anymore you got any right to be. Samir, his kindness was nonstop. The stack of ones that got lower as the day went on. It was beautiful, and it was for God that he did that. But it was also like a pretty good excuse for like, if your girl catches you going to the strip club. <laughs> Isn't it? Who's these ones for Samir? Fucking for God's children? Get off my back, lady. These are for charity. She thick as hell. One of my last days in Iraq, Samir took me to see these cities south of Baghdad that had been recently liberated. But it was more like cities that had been recently completely destroyed. Despite everything we tried to teach the Iraqis about how war should be conducted, they basically, they reverted to Soviet doctrine. They blew everything up, which I guess we did our fair share of that too. I remember like one of the most striking things is you'd see like, fields of destroyed palm trees. They look like their own shadows, embers and ash in the sand. That's how thorough the shelling was. But even that didn't really pacify the enemy, not really. We, we were on patrol with some Iraqi soldiers and all of a sudden you hear these rounds crack overhead. 
Everyone hit the dirt, except for the highest-ranking guy there, this Iraqi army, like, colonel or major or something. He just stood there with his hands in his pockets, looking around. Now, in a war movie, that means, okay, we got a badass over here. But in an actual war, that means that we failed. We spent millions, years, training leaders like him, and here he was doing the exact wrong thing. When ISIS took over half of Iraq, basically overnight, everyone was surprised, and that everyone includes ISIS. They'd expected to do like a couple raids, some high-profile attacks, and then get killed. But instead, almost as if by divine intervention, the Iraqi army dissolved around them. The seas parted. It was all pretty disheartening. And as it got darker, the Iraqi soldiers, they told us, hey, listen, either you guys got to leave now, or you got to stay the night and we're passing out rifles. We can't secure this area. And so we left. And we get through the destroyed neighborhood that's basically the front line. Maybe two streets over, we hear something coming up the road. It's pop music, Iraqi, Egyptian, something, and car horns blaring. We see them coming up. It's like 12 cars. It's a, it's a wedding caravan. It's the bride, the groom, the family. They're all going nuts. It's these cars painted with streamers and roses, blasting music, blaring the horn. By the time they passed us, they were so loud that you couldn't hear the artillery anymore. But you could feel it, the shockwave in your chest, like a thud, gentle. You know how sometimes your mind takes you somewhere? Like you smell diesel and you're back in like a granddad's truck, something like that? The caravan, for whatever reason, it sent me back to the, the kill house, the execution room. How back there I thought, you know how people say everything happens for a reason? I thought, that's fucking stupid. So many people died in that room that their blood spread to every corner and when it got to the walls, it crept up the wall an inch deep. Their blood spread as far as it could because it had to. Cruelty doesn't have any magic upper limit. There's something relentless and unsympathetic about what happens to people and what people do to each other that the universe doesn't seem to care about. But watching the, the wedding caravan, I thought, the universe doesn't seem to care about them either. If misery and horror are relentless and unsympathetic, maybe whatever this is, is too. Maybe joy spreads as far as it can, because it has to. I've been Jadass, thank you. flowing out like endless rain into a paper cup they slither while they pass they slip away across the universe pools of sorrow waves of joy are drifting through my open mind possessing and caressing me Nothing's gonna change my world 
Nothing's gonna change my world. Nothing's gonna change my world. Nothing's gonna change my world. Well, that is almost all for this episode, folks. This is Imaginary Future and Kina Granis behind me now. And we just heard from Jad S. Don't forget Jad's looking for work, comedy, writing, journalism. And you can find him on Instagram at Jad Slay. We'll be right back. We're back. Folks, the next Risk Live shows are June 22nd in New York and June 17th in Los Angeles. So be sure to check risk-show.com slash live to find out more and come out to see us. And we're also planning on creating a very different sort of live event soon that we might be bringing to your very town real soon. And we'll be eager to hear your feedback on our ideas for this new experiment so keep listening and we'll say more about it on future episodes but that's coming soon and folks today's the day <laughs> take a risk Nothing's gonna change my world Nothing's gonna change my world Nothing's gonna